This week sees the return of one of our favourite and most popular guests, the industrial designer Lucia de Respinez. With a career spanning over seven decades, Lucia retired last year at the age of 93. Now 94, Lucia was recently recognised for her outstanding contributions to industrial design by the IDSA, the Industrial Designers Society of America. Therefore, we felt we needed to hear from Lucia about the accolade and also have her reflect on her stellar career. In what was a really novel interview, we met Lucia in the marvellous secret gardens of her iconic Manhattan apartment complex, where she's lived since the 1960s. It was a Saturday afternoon in late September, and we sat, had pizza and a beer, and just reflected on life. We asked Lucia to pass on her advice for the upcoming generation of industrial designers to prepare them for the world they're entering. Lucia and I discuss also the standards of industrial design today, the public's awareness of design, and where design standards have fallen. And she shares her perspective on the role of industrial designers in organisations today. Lucia also reflects on the enduring memories of her career, her life lessons, and the traits she respects and deplores in both herself and others. And we discuss her favourite New York design icon, and the designer she wishes she'd worked with but didn't, and what she'd study if she was starting out today. Lucia's body of work, her lifetime achievements in industrial design and laterally teaching design students at the Pratt Institute, cements her legacy as not only a torchbearer for women in industrial design, but as one of America's most iconic industrial designers. If you listen to her first interview, you'll realise and learn that Lucia's successful life was full of struggle and sacrifice. And at 94, Lucia's physical endurance, her alacrity, wit and grace should serve as an inspiration to anyone struggling with life and its challenges. Please enjoy this hour-long interview with Lucia N. de Respinez. Lucia, welcome back to the Impossible Network. It's a joy to be back here. <laughs> well, it's a joy to be sitting here in the garden of Kipps Bay Towers. Oh, yes. In Midtown Manhattan. It's a secret garden. It is a secret garden. Nobody knows it's here. Yeah, it's extraordinary. We can see the Empire State Building uh, to the west and to the east, um, across to Brooklyn, and this oasis of calm in the centre of the city. It's just lovely. And you've lived here for how many years? Well, my first lease, our first lease, when my husband was living was 1960 and then he died of course in 1970 when my daughter was seven years old so that was awful but if I hadn't lived here where there was a um, uh, a group of, of people connected to the arts people in architecture industrial design uh, graphic design interior design and and of course my husband and I both industrial designers and we formed a, a group of 12 families that sat for each other's kids mm-hmm. and that was absolutely a, a lifesaver for me after he died I often told my daughter I didn't bring you up <laughs> 11 other families brought you <laughs> up <laughs> so, so it was it was difficult after that, but I worked like mad, and that's why I've gotten to this point. And all of a sudden, this was the weird thing, I looked on my computer, and I saw that uh, this student from 13 years ago said, Lucia, we're putting together some information about you. And we've decided that that we're going to submit this for uh, to IDSA Industrial Designers Society of America, and we want to submit it for a fellowship for that organization. And I said, "What? <laughs> In fact, let me read this because this tells you the whole thing." So, okay. So just just to timestamp this. I mean, you retired from Pratt just over a year and a half ago yeah in 19 May 2020 yeah yeah just at the beginning of the pandemic yeah and that's after a, a stellar career in industrial design and teaching at Pratt yeah it was about half and half it overlapped yeah yeah so that 
the fact is that now, if you don't mind me saying, you are now 94 years old. Yes. It's extraordinary that and you are... May and, in, be... and in And in, in fantastic shape as well. And in May and I'll be 95. Five. So <laughs> did this come as a surprise to you that they've waited so long to give you this fellowship? Well, you know, the thing is, I wasn't a person that was out to grab, uh, grab notoriety. I mean, some people, that they enjoy that. But I enjoyed the profession so much that it was just a matter of getting a good project and be able to have good clients that understood what good design was. And that was, that was the gratifying part of it. But the, the search for notoriety, no. If I had wanted that, I would have written. Mm-hmm. I would have written for uh, Innovation, the uh, industrial design magazine, I would have written for other uh, uh, magazines that were interested in industrial design. But I was just always working so hard, I didn't have time to write. And then afterwards, I, I just uh, when I was just teaching, I put my efforts into passing along my information to students that were so interested the way I was in what this profession is. Mm-hmm. And it's the kind of profession that you, <clears throat> that if you're totally involved in it, you walk down the street and you see all the things you would have redesigned. You see all the things that you think are wrong, all the colors and the shapes and the things that don't work. You go into the kitchen and you use things that break too soon or that don't function the way they should, and you think, that's why industrial design was, is here. Mm-hmm. Because it's to make everybody's life a little easier. And I was so sort of intent on that that I figured I just enjoyed designing and What's the point of your name? I mean, people forget the name, especially my last name, D-Respinus. What kind of name is that? (laughs) Well, it's Adriatic Italian, but that was my husband's name. I took it because, as I think I said in the last podcast, uh, because it sounds like a designer. Mm -hmm. Lucia Neumann? No. I don't know. I, Lucia Gerespinus. Whoa. I think, I think that would fly as well. <laughs> and if you say Lucia Gerespinus, <laughs> oh, that's even worse. <laughs> well, then that's fashion, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so that's why I didn't really go out to grab uh, grab the headlines, so to speak. Um, but if I had wanted, I would have. Uh, if I've wanted that, I would have written. Mm-hmm. That's how people get their name out. Okay, yeah. well, maybe before we get into talk a bit more about building on what you're, we talked about in the last podcast, why don't you take us through your acceptance okay. of the fellowship? Well, this is the way it sounded. It was virtual, unfortunately. It would have been fun to give it to a group of a few hundred uh, or however many there would be. This is uh, a year for their... Uh, international, uh-huh. so it would have been great to give it to a few thousand. I'm surprised they made it virtual, given that we are. You know, yeah, the city's opening up. Well, Broadway's I don't back. know. It was their decision that they they'd rather do it virtually, and that's what the entire international is. It's all virtual. Of course, yeah, they're not going to yeah. fly in. Anyway, so here we go. So I start with. I'm going to read this because I don't trust my 94-year-old memory. (laughs) What a total surprise it was to read an email from Gabriel Roig, vice chair of the Northern Lakes chapter of IDSA, saying that he and Lauren Dorn, chapter chair, and a group of IDX Pratt students were putting together research necessary for me to support me for an IDSA fellowship. Really? Well, 
a very big thanks to Gabriel, Lauren, and their crew, and thank you, IDSA, for agreeing. I do not take such an honor lightly. Your rouster is replete with those with whom I was so fortunate to work 30, 40, 50 plus years ago. In 1952, I entered this profession, which I love. It was a time when the general public was not sure what the term industrial design meant. My mother had to explain that I was not designing engines, though she said I probably could. After all, she was my mother. My career has offered me opportunities from the micro of the Dunkin' Donut logo to the macro of the American Exhibition in Moscow and everything in between. Much later, my design life overlapped with teaching. When a friend asked if I would take a once-a-week, three-hour class at Pratt Institute, and my reply was, I don't teach. But I tried it for a month, four classes, and I was hooked. Learning to solve a complex problem with 12 very different minds is an interesting journey. I should say a few words about being a woman in this profession. In 1952, it was almost exclusively a man's field. ID at Pratt was 65 men and three women, of which I was one. After graduation, it was not unusual when I entered a workplace or a factory of a client to be asked, where's your boss? (laughs) And how about that for a beginning? (laughs) Even now, women are less likely to be in influential positions that in turn open doors to other women. But I am hopeful that this profession will fully embrace the talents and ambitions evident in the hundreds of extraordinary women who have passed through my classes. Again, I thank IDSA for bestowing this honor, and I wish for this organization an understanding of its importance and its immense possibilities at this time and place in history. Thank you. Wonderful. What a great speech. Three minutes. And and, and what was their reaction afterwards? Did you you take questions? They said it was smooth and it said everything and thank you. Uh, And a QA and a after it? And, uh, pardon? A Q&A after it? No, no, no? Q&A. Okay. Because I wasn't the only one. Uh-huh. There, was, uh, there were three people that were getting fellowships and a couple that were getting special uh, rec- excuse me, recognition for uh, writing or, or some professional thing that they'd, mm. they had done. So... Uh, there wasn't really any time to uh, recapitulate at all. It was mostly just read your speech and then you get your reward. <laughs> and that's it. Do they send you something? Is, huh? it, is it like a little statue or something? They sent a solid crystal uh, looking at the from the top, it's square, uh-huh. but it's about uh, 10 inches high and about... Uh, what three inches uh, square and then engraved on the side is IDSA with the name mm-hmm. and fellowship and uh, a fellow of IDSA it's, it must be um, a bit of pressure designing an award for the Industrial Design Association of America <laughs> Well, <laughs> given I'm, everything you've said about functionality and uh, um, and abstraction. How do you go about solving that problem for a, well, I a design award? Well, <laughs> I immediately looked at it and said I would have designed it a different way. <laughs> <laughs> this you have to put someplace, but you can't hang it up. So I think I would have done something that was three-dimensional but could be hung, 
not as heavy. They must have paid a fortune for the shipping. It was in a lovely box uh, with Chinese uh, gold tea paper on the outside. And uh, the box was very heavy and very protective. But the whole thing must have weighed, I don't know, six pounds or something. And I never did weigh it. I have to remember to do that. But it was, um, it was lovely to get it. But I thought at the time, um, I mean, it's, it's something that you think, where the hell am I going to put mm. this? <laughs> you know, and it's nice that it's small and, and very compact, being a solid, <laughs> a solid rectangular three-dimensional form of crystal. <laughs> but... Um, I'm not too sure where it's going to be. It looks sort of strange just sitting out there. Well, it's all the same. It's a wonderful accolade, and congratulations on that. Now, question for you. So all those aspiring wannabe industrial designers, given the, sort of the, the accolade, the award you've just won, um, and the wealth of experience of of working in the industry and the successes you've had from logos to clocks to exhibits ah. yeah exhibits and events yeah. like um, yeah. and installations what would your advice be to a current generation living in this time and I remember you mentioning in the last interview around how design is so influenced by the context and the culture and the time that you're living in yeah. What advice would you pass on to the generation coming through now that they should be cognizant of and to prepare them for uh, the challenges they that lie ahead of them as they design for a better life, as you say? I think that very definitely every industrial designer should take a business course because there's big openings for entrepreneurial <coughs> designers have your own business but a lot of people don't understand how to run their own business and they fail at it and there are more and more people coming out of Pratt that are starting their own business and you wonder how long is this going to last because this person doesn't quite understand money (laughs) and it's um, it's considered a way to until you can maybe go with an office or get a partner. Now, if you're a woman, are you going to get a woman partner or a male partner? And for me, that was difficult. In those days, no guy would ever hook up with a woman as a partner, especially if he was married. (laughs) (laughs) So, So that's something you have to think of. It's much more complex now. And it's a good idea if you're going to think about uh, you've got an idea that you've, you'd like to patent, you've got an idea you'd like to have manufactured, to learn something about business so that you know as much as the guy you're talking to. Mm-hmm. You can't screw, be screwed over by some manufacturer or the like. Okay. And uh, I think to get as broad an understanding of what a business is, as broad as possible, is really going to be important if you're going to be successful entrepreneurial. And in a way, it is more difficult now to get into an office other than a small office, and they won't be able to pay you that much. Uh, large offices paid well, but there aren't that many large offices about anymore that really are are well known. To work for a manufacturer, okay, then you have to know how to negotiate and you have to know how to how to say at a certain point, I've been here for this year and a half. Now I'd like to have a review of what I've done and, uh, and to understand what your raise in salary should be 
because more and more we have to think about living a long time, mm -hmm. having enough money to live that long at a level that we're used to. Because there's nothing more depressing than somebody who has been successful, not been aware of what their, their bank account has to be when they retire. <clears throat> not speaking of myself, I'm okay. But, but uh, a lot of people that I know that are, uh, well, a little bit younger than I am now, but they haven't thought about that. And they've loved what they've done. But now they're teaching because they're in their 70s. And you don't make money teaching. I have to say, it's a great way to pass on your information. But teaching is not a way to make money. And, uh, well, if you go to Harvard or if you go to, uh, to Yale or to one of the big schools who can afford it, fine. But if you go and teach at Pratt, is well known and and you say I teach at Pratt and that means something but as far as the money goes mm -hmm. it's Small. it's not really anything you can totally depend on mm -hmm. so I would say to learn learn how to run a business is really important and the other thing is not to expect to work for a large office and if you're working for a large corporation that's a whole other thing. I never did that. So I can't pass on any information. I just think it might be very depressing at some point because you're really hooked into it and you're hooked into it for health insurance. And there again, health insurance is very expensive now. When I was working freelance, health insurance was much lower. So... Uh, a student now has to realize that they may have to pay all their health insurance and if they look at what that costs then they realize what sort of a salary they're going to have to make when they get out so it depends how you want to work it depends on your knowledge about the field today and hopefully you are very talented because now every university across the country has an industrial design department and they're turning out people hand over fist. What's changed? I mean, obviously the composition of industry has changed dramatically yeah. over the, the decades that you've been working and teaching. Yeah. And today, clearly, the rise of big tech. And the, even if we just look at it, the rapid transformation occurring in the automotive industry, there must be an allure for young graduating industrial designers to focus on certain industries. Did you see any pat new patterns emerging about where they were going? Where are they going? Where are they being drawn to the Googles, the Amazons, the Teslas? Or did you see people still wanting to go to a, an agency? I don't know. I think it's uh, it's difficult to know when you're teaching where students want to find themselves. And when they graduate, even the day of graduation, they're not sure where they're going. Now, a lot of them went to people like Rita Sue Siegel, who was difficult in a way because... She only pushed the people that she liked. Um, and if you go to someone who finds you a job, okay, um, you take your, you uh, put your portfolio on uh, digitally so they can look at it. And that's the other problem. They're not seeing you face to face anymore. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't. I don't know whether that answers your question. <laughs> Again, taking that um, description of industrial design that solves real-world problems, make people's lives better. Yeah. Do you think, looking back, we've the quality of design of the, what we use for living our lives, for the seats we sit in, the chairs, the, the tables mm -hmm. we, we sit at, the devices we use do you think design has just generally got better over the years or do you still think there's a lot of issues to solve 
Well, I'm... <laughs> is, this, is the standard higher now than it was, let's say, in the 60s? Let's say now... I think the general public is more aware of what the word is. And I think the general public maybe will eventually understand that they can be critical of what they use mm-hmm. because somebody goofed. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, I think design has, has, has increasingly become better. And uh, I think the good design has risen to the top more easily now than bad design. I think it's become more integrated into, uh, into our lives, and I think we're less aware of what the things are that have been done well because we're so used to things being a little bit better than they were. Because at one point... No manufacturer ever had an industrial designer. They didn't know what that was. The engineers did it. And half the engineers didn't think about it as long as it worked engineering-wise. They didn't think about how the person holds it or where the off button is or any of that. But now that's a standard thing. So I think we're more used to good design. Mm-hmm than we used to be and I I think it's become more a part of our living Um, a lot of it is still not the way it should not at the level it should be Mm -hmm. but I think it's um, I think it's a little bit more integrated into our everyday lives now I'd love to get a, um, a sense of what design has stood out for you in the last 10 or 15 years whether it be um, a brand a manufacturer a device something you've gone genius that is brilliant well that's difficult because I I look at things so many different ways and of course things you don't use you don't know if they're really working or not Mm -hmm. but visually on the negative, I can say the automotive industry industry has been a downer visually. I mean, I don't know why they don't feel that unique look to a line of uh, to a manufacturer's uh, output is a real plus. Mm-hmm. Why do they all have to look the same? Now, is that because I've never designed, of course, never designed on it. I've never been in that industry, in that industry. But is it that that now there are so many restrictive restrictive things about the way this is built because of the number of digital things that must be uh, Designed into mm-hmm. into the automobile, and the fact that they'd like it to go faster, so they don't have anything on the outside and for sustainability reasons. And it's, yeah, yeah. Um, but still, I wonder. Uh, there are so many changes that could be made <clears throat> that would make each one as used to be years ago you'd be able to identify immediately. Mm-hmm. And even as a kid, I could identify all the major cars when I was a little kid uh, riding along with my mother and father. I could identify immediately. But today I keep yeah. looking. Is is that a, a key? What is that? I can't tell Is that an Oldsmobile? No. I think I in, in fairness <laughs> to Tesla, I think Tesla vehicles do have something distinctive about them. Yeah. And you can certainly see them. But you don't see many of them. Uh, they're growing. <coughs> There's certainly a fair few around um, yeah. Manhattan. But I take your point. I think there, there's a slightly sort of a to use generic look and feel for SUVs. And yeah, it's a sort of a branding. Yeah. Branding thing. But as far as something that sticks out it has been designed recently... I can't think of anything really. It's I, I think for interiors it's all sort of very bland right now. Interiors doesn't seem to know where it is. The colors are bland. 
uh, the the relationship of colors to an interior there's there's not that that feeling of relationship of of color um, I think the color of the year is a color that I happen to like it's a green with a lot of gray mm-hmm. and uh, is this the Pantone fact, color that, of the year that's what one of my walls oh. is it's a gray with a lot of green but as far as an individual product I can't think of anything. I know I've I've handled a lot of packaging that I have very, very negative feelings about for an older person. Mm-hmm. And if you have a, 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 a visual problem the way I have, then it's even worse mm-hmm. because all the type on everything seems very small. And... Uh, there are a lot of things that probably have been done that are great, but I'm not really aware of them because I don't go out and buy things anymore. <laughs> okay. Aside from things, I know you. Well, I asked you in the last interview about what things, something you designed that you're most proud of, and you said everything you were proud of doing yeah. because of the way that you approach your work. Mm. What um, is a standout design? Piece, item, product that you look back on from another industrial designer that you think is underappreciated? Underappreciated. Or maybe doesn't have the recognition you think it should have. Yeah. There was, well, the biggest thing that stands out in my mind is a designer who died very early. Um, and it's, it's awful, I can't remember his name. He died in his 30s. He and his wife were both designers of furniture. And during the 60s and the 70s, I think he died in the 80s, he was the most under underexposed, I might say, because he wasn't that interested in getting exposure. But he was so interested in the fact that he designed in a way to save material and he designed individual pieces that would last. And even though IKEA has serviced the public to a great extent, uh, they also service themselves because their stuff does not stand up against uh, hard use. Mm-hmm. So that, uh, if I could remember, I'm sorry, I don't remember his name. I think it begins with an M. It will come back to you, and I'll put it in the in the edit. <laughs> when it comes I, back to you, let me know. I hope, yeah. yeah. Um, but he died, and then his wife died not too long after that, and she kept on for a while. Mm-hmm. But their stuff. Was, was like IKEA. It was so simple. It would work in a, in a beginner's uh, interior. Somebody, uh, it was uh, fairly inexpensive. And uh, it was well designed. And the finish was very nice. And the quality was absolutely top grade. Mm-hmm. And he brought it down, he brought the cost down so that he said, anybody, anyone, beginning can, uh, can really afford this. And I, I felt he was the beginning of something, but it was the end of something mm-hmm. too, because then all of the very 1950s, 60s, and 70s furniture prices went up and uh, modern was considered something that was expensive. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but, you know, today, and also, unfortunately, if, if you have an eye problem, you don't get around to see what's out there, but the magazines I get or the people that I listen to or uh, Innovation, the magazine from IDSA mm-hmm. um, or going to the showrooms I don't see things that are like, outstanding 
And as far as products go, I would have to use them in order to know if they were really doing their job. Mm-hmm. Um, I assume there are a lot of good things being designed. I mean, I assume that uh, the that any of the uh, the products that are coming out of manufacturers they they have designers now, which is good. If you want to work for a manufacturer, there are designers. Almost every corporation has designers. And they're brought to the front, too, if they're good. And they know how to weave their way through this, this web of bureaucracy in any of these organizations. They eventually become known as people that have to be brought in at the beginning of a project which is the way designers are brought in in a lot of corporations now, then they have control of how some things are done. And, of course, that never happened years ago. So from that point of view, you, you as, as, as a, uh, somebody graduating from Pratt right now mm-hmm. have to think about how do you know how to work with people that are at that level how do I not appear as the young one in the group? <laughs> how, how broad is your understanding of the field right now, of, of the universe? You know, um, we're not thinking about just that one little piece of whatever that's being designed. You have to make your, men, your, your employer aware of the fact that you think very broadly and that you're aware of what's happening now in this time and place in history and how it's going to affect the future. So I think there's a lot to be expected of industrial designers and I think you have to prepare yourself for that if you're going to get to any level in mm-hmm. this field. Looking back at your, the journey through your career... What sort of major life lessons do you think you gained along the way? Well, do what you love. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> because you're going to have to spend a lot of time doing it now. And we all know that. Doing it under very difficult circumstances sometimes. Doing it from the point of view of maybe thinking another way to do what you do and still enjoying it. Because circumstances change. Mm-hmm. People move from job to job a lot now. And you have to have an open mind as to how your talents and abilities and understanding of the world can be used in maybe a slightly different way. So you have to apply design to what you do. Design to your own life. Exactly. Yeah? Okay. Yeah. What do you think the most enduring memory of your career is? <laughs> when you look back, you sort of reflect on yeah. all the amazing places you worked at, the people you worked with, the places you went. What stands out? Well, a lot of the places after I stopped teaching, after after I decided, well, I was still teaching, but in the summer I decided to travel, but that has nothing to do with the industrial design field. But those, uh, those times in Africa and in India and in China was connected with uh, industrial design because we were, we were uh, talking with manufacturers in China on their location um, and finding out what their approach to design in the various manufacturing locations, what mm-hmm. their approach was to design. If they hired designers, if they used designers, then we went to a design school in China, and that was sort of memorable. Um, a lot of their work was very, uh, not very creative. Some of it was, uh, and 
didn't expect some of it, really, at that time. But that was many years ago, and I'm sure it's much more creative now. <clears throat> but that was one of their major schools, and that was an interesting time. But as far as uh, my experience here, well, I guess there again, it's in another country. It was the whole seven weeks in, in Moscow. Uh, the World Fair. In, uh, at that uh, American exhibit in Moscow. And um, I guess it was also designing the Abbott Laboratory information that had to be made understandable for the general public, uh, general public about their, their work with uh, ganglions and nerve growth factor and its relationship to cancer. Mm-hmm. And that is still an interesting topic in science today. But trying to design an exhibit that would be that would be acceptable for the general public mm-hmm. and then also not not be so simplistic or leave out so much that the uh, those in the profession would think it was just a a newspaper clipping or something but that was in the science pavilion that Yamasaki designed in um, in the World's Fair in Seattle, Washington. That was an interesting project to be handed a stack of papers all technical and say make this understandable for the general public. What? <laughs> okay, uh, after a month uh, I finally was able to do it, but it was not an easy project. And then I suppose, I don't know, just meeting with clients mm. is is so interesting. I mean, some clients are so receptive, and it really becomes a time and place that you enjoy. And other clients, you have to really work with them to make them understand that Yes, they have this project, but yes, they've hired you, and they're paying good money. <laughs> and uh, uh, well, that's, that's, a, that's a good point to ask you about traits. So you've dealt with designers, as you say. You work with clients, you work with other people. What, I'm going to ask you about traits in others and traits in yourself. What traits do you most respect in others? Those that are straightforward, honest, not afraid to tell you that something is wrong. Mm-hmm. Not afraid to tell you that they don't like it, but not afraid to tell you why. A lot of people say, I don't like it, but they don't know why, and they won't admit to it. So they hum and whore about it, and you're not, you're not too sure what direction you're going to follow because you can't get any, any honest uh, discussion or honest opinion. Mm-hmm. But someone that uh, respects the fact that just because they're paying you doesn't mean that you're just doing it because you're getting paid for it. You have to, on the other hand, make them understand that you enjoy what the work is that you're doing for them. It's not just because you're getting paid. It's because this is your profession, and you love this profession, and your whole idea is to make life easier for the world by designing something that visually is wonderful and works beautifully and is, it can be appreciated by whoever is near it. Mm-hmm. And what trait do you, let's say, most deplore in others? Lack of honesty. Mm-hmm. So the flip of that, really. Yeah, yeah. it's a flip-flop. Okay. Yeah, what because about that sends you in a wrong direction. And what about yourself? What trait do you think you most dislike about yourself that you've made have worked on over the years and what trait do you think has uh, prepared you and helped you achieve what you've achieved 
Well, the thing that I hate about myself and also love about myself, the main thing, is the same thing. And it's the need to have it as perfect as possible. Mm -hmm. Now, that drives you to put in many more hours of work than you're ever getting paid for. But it also drives you to appreciate the look on the client's face when they see something yeah. that they really think is great. How do you know when to stop, though? How do you know when you... <laughs> That's what I ask students. <laughs> I say, do you know when to stop? And I look at the project, and they're going on and on. There's a little voice, if you've got the experience, but it takes a while to hear that little voice that says, now you've just got it. Now, don't do anything else. The other way to know is that you do something else, and it wrecks it. Yeah. <laughs> and you say, it's too late then. oh, I've gone too far. So you either go back if it's, if it's possible. Or you don't go back and it's ruined. <laughs> yeah. You've lived in New York for so long. Mm. What do you think? New York's got such... So many iconic landmarks, iconography, uh, locations, design, aesthetic of the city is quite unique. What really stands out for you as the ultimate design icon of New York? Well, I guess it's what it houses. It's what? It's what it houses. Uh. The Met, the Metropolitan Museum. It was designed at a time when the architectural aesthetic was very different than it is today. But it has served this public in such a beautiful way, and it has lent itself to showing the the elegance and the and the important historic uh, art of of the world and I just I just think going in the space and the way the space was designed and the way it's being used it's always just so perfect somehow the small exhibits I have a small space large exhibits have a beautiful area and I don't know you may think that's a you know that's a fallback really but I just enjoy going mm -hmm. to the Met so much it's not an answer that you would expect um, no I would have expected you to say the Guggenheim ah uh, no the Guggenheim has a sense of its own uh, it's unique but it's not my favorite favorite environment. Mm -hmm. It's tough for people in wheelchairs. Of course, <laughs> and, anyone that's uh, not been there to the sort of the sweeping yeah, ramps, the sweeping uh, conical uh, yeah. round and round. It's a lovely idea, and I'm I'm glad that all museums aren't designed like the Met. Mm. I'm also glad they're not all designed like the Guggenheim. Uh, but I think the thing that's lovely about New York is the variety. Mm -hmm. It's not anything in sp that's specific. It's that everyone, regardless of their sense of aesthetics or whatever, can find something here that's satisfying. And that's not true all over the United States. Yeah. If I lived in, in, in some cities, I would just die not to see visually uh, some of the things that you see in New York yeah, that apply that satisfy me but some of the things that satisfy somebody else in wherever we're talking they'd come to New York they'd find something to satisfy themselves so I think it's 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 just the way New York has grown up, the thing that really bothers me is, is the, it's the ugliness that has come about with the skyline. Oh, really? Because of these stupid 
slender, one apartment on a floor, unbelievably expensive, ugly, uh, rectangular, tiny rectangular solids going up 60 floors. Oh, well, I mean, they are... They impose themselves. Well, I read about the one on um, the four was it four twenty five Park Avenue where Park Jennifer Avenue. Lopez lives. And that was issue, one. And the issues they're having with it, with the um, the, the noise, the elevators it's breaking down. Awful. There's been a lawsuit raised yeah. today on it. And the thing is, it's it's not a way to live. All of these are being bought up by people who want to invest their money and they think that there are people there that are going to want to live there but a lot of people don't want to live in a building like that Mm -hmm. they invest in it they put their money in and now is it worth something I don't know we'll find out in the future but there are now when you stand on the roof of the Met and you look out over the skyline Mm -hmm. you see four of these ugly things not even spaced in interesting relationships in the city, of course. That just would happen or not happen, but it didn't happen. And they're just sort of equally spaced, and it looks so stupid. <laughs> I just hate them. <laughs> okay. Um, what designer from history, or it could be alive or dead, that you didn't work with that you would have loved to have collaborated with? Oh, Alexander Girard. He had such a feeling for color and shape. He was an architect, but he, his mind would go out beyond architecture. He was the one who first, unfortunately, designed the Braniff fully painted planes back in the 1970s, I think it was. And the paint was so heavy on the planes, they had to take the paint off because it used too much fuel because it added so much weight to the planes and nobody ever thought of that ahead of time Wow! but those planes were really interesting looking with green wings and a and a uh, terracotta body and then orange uh, doors and oh they were great but you can't do that <laughs> and But he designed fabrics, and he had collected just his ability, his curatorial uh, ability to look at things and uh, gather them together. Uh, He gathered together a lot of stuff from uh, Native Americans and uh, other uh, handmade objects from various locations in, in, in Mexico and South America and in, uh, in New Mexico in the United States and opened a shop uptown that Herman Miller it was their shop actually and it was called Textiles and Objects mm-hmm. and it had just fascinatingly wonderful beautiful handcrafted things and gorgeous textiles and all and uh, it closed of course in the late or the early 90s I guess it closed I think it was only open for about 20 years or maybe less Mm -hmm. because most people wouldn't pay the price and Herman Miller had a price tag on everything that was beyond what it should have been so that was one of the problems but I think his ability to understand form and color and shape and think of things differently. He designed a restaurant on the west side called uh, La Fonda del Sol that was a beef restaurant use, uh, serving Argentinian beef. And inside it was all black and white tile and then beautiful, brilliant colored umbrellas over the tables and and the plates and the and everything there he designed and it was just beautiful and I don't know of another architect that can compare to that I mean most architects are not inclined so but this was the absolute 
absolute opposite to what you think of as an architect. <laughs> oh, sounds great. Where was La Fonda del Sol? That was up on the west side as around 60th Street oh. on a on a north on a northeast corner of some place on 60th Street and 6th Avenue. And it was a wonderful restaurant. The beef they served, that's when I was eating beef, (laughs) was this Argentinian beef, and they had a wonderful counter, huge counter, beautiful wood, and then black and white tile, and then all this beef being cut. So that as you walked into the restaurant and you walked back, you passed the area where the chefs were all cutting, slicing the beef and all. It was just an experience. Lovely. Just lovely. Nothing like it in New York now. No. I mean, Peter Luger, <laughs> you order it and you get get, wow. get it on a plate, but it's there's, just the same no, old there's, Peter there's Luger. No, there's no character there. No at character all. at all. This was... And it's a shame that it closed. I don't know why, except that it was part of Restaurant Associates. Mm. And they were sponsored by uh, uh, a guy who was president who had married a very wealthy woman, and she had put all her money into all these restaurants. There were five of them, in fact. And there was that one. Then there was the Forum of the Twelve Caesars. Uh, which Pullman, who was an interior designer, designed the interior of, and that was a joke. There were faux uh, portraits of all the Caesars on the walls around. And I don't know, I think I told you the story of the uh, the woman that walked out with the uh, with the ice bucket that was, they were worth close to $2,000 a piece. And uh, she was she was very well known. She was an editor, and she brought in eight other people, and they had this huge round table. And she loved the ice bucket. So before she left, she dumped the ice out and put it on her head. And it was designed in a, a, a like a Roman helmet. Mm. Nobody could stop her because they figured she'd never come back, and they had they had, they had bought. Wonderful dinners for for eleven people or ten or however, and uh, she's I guess until the day she died she may still be living. I don't know. I'm so old. I think everybody's dead. <laughs> anyway, well, she um, may have it. So a couple of more questions. If you were starting out again today, either going to university, either what? If going to university, starting out again today, mm. what would you do? Industrial design. Still industrial design? Yeah. I might approach it differently. I might look into uh, some of the other uh, schools that, that have it now. I always wanted to, to uh, get involved with architecture, but uh, I don't think I would have the patience, and I don't think architecture is three-dimensional enough for me. I think I would I would still definitely go into industrial design. But I might take a master's at try to get into Harvard or to or Yale or whatever. For my undergraduate work, I think I would still go to Pratt, though I might consider uh, Rhode Island School of Design. It's also a very good school. But and what uh, about internationally? Pardon? What about internationally? If you weren't here in the U.S. Um, no, I think I would take the opportunity to take a year, maybe in Italy, or uh, in France, or in England. At that time, students didn't do that. Mm-hmm. My daughter did. She took uh, a year in, in in Italy, and then she had time in England, and. Um, that was not available to us. It was a different time and place, you know. As I say, it's 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 time, and that time and place in history really controls how you approach your life. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you're sensitive enough to what's happening around you in the world, uh, you can design your life in a way, at least the way you think it 
would you'd like it to work and of course that never happens either <laughs> in very few cases and I think I would write more I think that's the thing that sends your opinions and your feelings about design out past past the immediate offices you're working with and the classroom mm -hmm. and I think every student should take a writing course that's a serious writing course a communication course how do you communicate with others and if you were writing an article how would you write that article and take a course to let you understand that but there are I think the industrial design courses should be five years very definitely we've said that for years there's much too much that's crammed down the throats in four years now didn't used to be that way but it's very different now I think it should be five years plus plus graduate course which is seven yeah very definitely and what would your motto be do what you love yeah. Do you think it's hard for people to do that? It's, it's hard. A, it's such a, it's such a, you know, you can't, no one could disagree with that, but a lot of people don't do it. And also a lot of people don't know what they like. Mm -hmm. A lot of people haven't investigated what there is in the world to do. So I'll throw that back at you. When did you discover that this was what you loved? I didn't. I remember you talking about your father and him working yeah. with you in your hands and workshops building and building stuff things. and putting stuff together. But then when I went to see, I always drew mm -hmm. and sketched. I never painted. I never. I never used watercolors much, even though tight watercolors I could. I could do a you know a rendering of a piece of furniture in watercolor or something like that. But just as an artist, I don't think I was an artist. I think when I got much older, I could have been an artist. But I think before, no, it was just building things and all, but I didn't realize how much I loved that until I got to Pratt in that first year. That's one reason why Pratt is really such a great school, because it exposes you to things that you might have put aside. Mm-hmm. And I started building stuff and and working at things. And if Pete Renz hadn't come along and said, "That's really good, <laughs> your three D work," I I would still be I would would have continued my idea of doing graphics, uh -huh. which I love also still. And <laughs> but I think that industrial design is so much broader. And graphics now has become just the computer graphics. Mm. And it's so poorly done. I would love to do some work with some manufacturer that's working with something that older people use mm. and give them an idea of what older people go through. They don't move as quickly. They don't see as quickly or as well. They don't hear as well. And unless you're ignoring a good, a good percentage and a, gro of, and a growing percentage of the a population, a growing as well. percentage yeah. of the population, then you might as well. If you're ignoring that, well, then you're ignoring it, and you're aiming it at the younger. younger I, I sense some consulting work coming on. Pardon? I sense some consulting oh, work coming along. <laughs> I was asked a couple of times if I would, mm -hmm. and then at the time I just sort of said I wasn't going to teach anymore and I just wanted my own freedom mm. but one thing I am going to do with uh, with what I have is glaucoma and uh, NYU um, has projects that they've asked if I would join there's something about the microbe in, in the older person mm -hmm. uh, somebody over 50 and how that relates to the type of glaucoma that I have and they want to do some experiments they just take you know take blood and take scrapings of the skin and that sort of thing and I said sure I'm I'm right here I'm across the street in fact 
<laughs> wow. So that's really good. That's great. So they and might operate? Yes, my doctor that said he's involved with it. And he said, I would be a good subject. So he said, do you mind if I give your name? And I said, no, I've wanted to do this for years, but nobody ever approached me, and I didn't know how to uh -huh. say that I was available. Wow. So now I'm not teaching or anything, and uh, I'm just having a good time. So why so, not? So we might see by your 97th birthday the eyesight returning. <laughs> no, I don't think it's <laughs> going to be that fast, no. No, this is, uh, it has to do with the web uh -huh. and with exfoliation in your system that may be caused by certain other things in the system. Mm. This kind of glaucoma clogs that mesh through which you see in the back, in the brain. And uh, that's what they want to find out, what that relationship is. So we'll see what happens. <laughs> well, I think the other thing, if they don't, if they don't get this solved, I think you definitely need to uh, contact one of your ex-students, um, <laughs> Keith, who uh, graduated from Pratt under you and has launched a product called Wearworks, and it's a haptic oh. band for people with uh, no sight, it, designed for runners to allow runners to run marathons without an aid. And oh, what it does is it's, it's a sensor that senses what's near you and how far things are, and it guides you through the haptic reactions on your skin. Oh, that's wonderful. It's called Wearworks. So I, think he, Wearworks. I think we need to contact Keith, one of our oh, previous that, guests, and get, that, get one of these bands to you. You should interview Keith. I have done. That's how oh, I did. you I have? Him, and that's, and that's how you connection. know? Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. So I'll reach out to him and say, hey, contact Lucia. <laughs> <laughs> there are a few uh, students who have followed through on that sort of thing, and there's a teacher at Pratt, a professor who uh, has designed surgical instruments and uh, he's done a lot of medical uh, medical objects um, and he's uh, he's terrific really he's been there for about 20 30 years and he has this business that is just flourishing but he finds a time to come in once a week to teach, which is wonderful. And it's on a Saturday, and all the students want to take his class. <laughs> so they all come in on a Saturday. Yeah. Well, we are sitting here on a Saturday in September. Um, and I have to say thank you very much again, Lucia, for your time, your reading us, your acceptance speech. Congratulations again on the fellowship. And uh, thank you for the pizza and the beer sitting in your garden <laughs> in Midtown. It's the most um, novel, uh, unique experience for doing a podcast. And I've thoroughly enjoyed it. So thank you very well, much. Well, it's, it's wonderful. And you're a terrific interviewer. <laughs> <laughs> and I've enjoyed every easy? minute of it. Oh. It's really great. Well, thank and you. I thank you so very much. Okay. Well, thank you, Lisha. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay. That's all for this week, folks. If you're enjoying the show, please either follow, download, or subscribe on your preferred podcast player. We'd also appreciate a rating and a review as it helps more people find us. And if you have a guest you think we should interview, just email us at info at theimpossiblenetwork.com or message us on Instagram at The Impossible Network. This is a Fabrica Collective production, so have a great week and we'll be back next time with another inspiring guest on The Impossible Network. 